Hello, Jeff. Thank you so much for, for being with us at Masters of CX, the esteemed author of the Service Culture Handbook. Really appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me here. It's my pleasure. <laughs> Great. So, yeah, the way we like to start uh, this conversation is just going over a bit of your background, where you come from, what led you into CX, and what do you think makes a great CX professional? So to start with my background, I really spent the bulk of my early career in customer service training. So I was a customer service trainer. And one of the things that always stood out to me was you could give people the right thing to say, the right thing to do, but inevitably, the rest of the customer experience was always playing a critical role. So as an example, let's say our customers are really angry because it's taking too long to ship out orders. So we give them training. What do you say when the customer's angry? But how about this? What if we just shipped the order out faster and met their expectations? And so that was always something that stuck in my mind as a customer service trainer, that the bigger picture, the entire customer experience was important. And, and so I've, Later years of my career, I've gravitated more to the entire customer experience and how do we pull all those pieces together. I think you also asked me, what, is, what makes a good customer experience consultant? It's a hard question for me to answer, quite frankly, because I don't have the typical consulting model. A lot of companies will come to me and say, uh, we have a problem. Can we pay you a bunch of money and then you solve it for us? And that's not how it works at all. And what I often do with prospective clients is I push back and say, wait a minute, I want to empower you to own your experience. Because if I own your customer experience, then you won't know how to fix it. You won't know how to make it great. You won't know how to keep it great. And so I often uh, flummox, I think, potential clients by saying, let me talk you out of hiring me as a consultant. But what I can do instead is give you tools and advice to empower you to deliver a superior customer experience. So my model's a bit different. I focus on the content, such as the Service Culture Handbook. I have training videos on LinkedIn Learning. I do keynote presentations. But when it comes to consulting, I try to empower my clients instead of doing the work for them. Amazing, amazing. Yeah, it's, I think the best coaches and the best consultants and everything, they're the ones who like guide the right thinking path rather than giving the right answer because Answers change, like as we're, we've all experienced throughout 2020, <laughs> the right answer is never that clear. Amazing, Jeff. Thank you for that. In terms of learning, I know that, like we said, customer experience is always changing and it is the, the way forward for companies and how they can scale and maintain growth. How do you go about learning yourself and who do you follow? What type of resources do you consume? What type of resources do you recommend the most to colleagues of yours or people who are just getting into the space? So are we talking about learning about customer experience specifically or learning about the experience our customers have and uh, how we can improve upon that? Mostly around uh, CX so or general resources that you consume daily and stuff okay. just to stay ahead of the game and do the best work you can for your clients. So I would start by defining customer experience. And, and I think this is really important. You can ask Maybe ask all your podcast guests, hey, what does customer experience mean? And you'll get all kinds of great answers. And the problem is they'll all be different. So before you start your learning journey, I think it's important to get a, a good grasp of what customer experience means. And, and we were talking off air about our colleague, Annette Franz, and, and I think she's came up with a great definition of customer experience. It's the one that I turn to. I will probably get 
the precise wording wrong, but I'll get the sentiment right, that it reflects the entire customer journey. All of the touch points that your customer has with your product, your service, your brand, and how your customer feels about those interactions. I think it's important to start with that sense of what is a customer experience, because that can help you deepen your understanding and knowledge. For me, the experts that I've turned to, and I spent a lot of time reading experts like Annette Franz, like Jeannie Walters, like Jean Bliss, and I think there's a lot of customer service experts like Shep Hyken, for example, who have in recent years really pivoted to spend even more time on customer experience. So there's a lot of those experts that have deep knowledge. I often spend a lot of time in the academic world as well, because I want to know the latest research in consumer psychology. I want to know the, the latest research in terms of what drives customer behavior. And I'm always interested in finding something that's maybe usual uh, or unusual, I should say, and a little different. As an example, I recently learned that in specific situations where we've created a service failure for a customer, it's not a horrible failure, but maybe something, maybe it took too long to deliver food in a restaurant, or maybe we sent them the wrong item. Instead of apologizing, there's really compelling research that says we should thank the customer for their patience and for their understanding. And I think that type of research is really interesting to find the nuances between an apology is okay, but a thank you enhances the customer's self-esteem and makes them feel even better. So I'm always reading academic papers and trying to find where are the experiments that we can apply to real life. Definitely. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, that's a different answer that we get here. And I think it's really great to be multidisciplinary and find not only different subjects, but different types of sources to go to. And I think that's how we all stay ahead of the game, 100%. And definitely, and uh, we were, the next question that we'd get into is like what customer experience means to you and what customer centricity means to you. And that, on that note, in terms of the culture of customer centricity, of customer obsession, how do you think uh, a company should go about building one? So we can start with that question first and then move towards uh, if a company already has one or has established one, how do you scale and maintain it through difficult periods as we've gone through this year? What, what I love about this question is, again, it's one of those that you'll probably get a lot of different answers. And when I wrote the Service Culture Handbook, I was reflecting on the work I had done as a consultant for many years and what had worked, what had not worked. I've always been a data guy and want to pay attention to what works, what doesn't work. And then I started looking at companies I admired. What do they have in common versus their competition? And I found one thing, and it makes so much sense when you realize this one thing that customer-focused companies do, and they do first, and that is define what a great customer experience means for them. So it's what I would call a customer experience vision statement. There's other names for it. You could call it whatever you'd like. Some people call it a customer experience mantra. Uh, sometimes it's the same as your mission statement. Sometimes it's the same as your brand statement. But what this particular statement does is it creates a clear definition of an outstanding experience that everyone in your company understands, knows, and agrees upon. You have to do that first. And here's why. Imagine that you were going to go on a journey. So you get out your phone or your GPS device. What's the one thing you need to know to get directions for your journey? 
destination. You need a destination, right? And it's the Absolutely. same thing with defining that customer experience vision. You need to start with a destination and then point everything you're doing towards that. So for any organization, you start there. And then as you scale, the challenge is being deliberate about aligning your decision-making with that customer experience vision. And the companies that scale successfully consistently go back to that vision when they make decisions. The companies that do not scale successfully struggle to do that, or they lose sight of the vision, they push it to the side and treat it as a, a one-time project. And, and I'll give you an example. There was a client that I worked with a, a number of years ago. A company's called Clio. They provide legal practice management software. So if you're a lawyer, you've heard of them. And if you're not a lawyer, you've not heard of them. But they won an award for best contact center culture. And one of the things that was interesting about it, it wasn't something they had done with like a training class or a couple of weeks of a project. They had been working on their culture for three years at that point. And they had been specifically and methodically working towards their vision and finding something to improve, improving it, and then finding the next thing to improve and improving it. And so as the company scaled, their vision continued to guide their growth. So having that clear and consistent definition is by far the most important thing you can do. Amazing. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's what sets the foundation for any type of action is defining on what are the clear goals, what are the clear metrics of success, 100%. And I know in your book, you touch a lot in incentives as well and how to create the right incentives and align the right incentives, especially with employees and how you can align them to this customer obsession. How do you think about uh, that? And how do you think companies should go about creating the right incentives? Do you think it should be more of an offensive type of incentive in terms of increasing top line growth or more defensive in terms of cost effectiveness and cost management? I'm glad you brought this up because I've done a lot of research on incentives and the research and the data is really clear. Incentives don't work. They destroy culture and they usually create more bad behaviors than good. And so I recommend to my clients to stay away from incentives. If you think about it, incentives are really based on this kind of false premise that employees need to be motivated, that whatever we've asked them to do is so distasteful that the only way to get them to do it is to give them a carrot or give them a stick, right? A carrot, something to chase after, or a stick, you're going to be punished if you don't do this. And I'll give you a specific example. We've probably had this where a company is doing a survey. And they'd say, an employee will come to you and say, hey, Shohal, would you give me a 10 on the survey? If you do, I'll give you a discount on your next order. It's really important to me. I get a 10. If I don't, I'm probably going to get fired. Now, you're a customer like, you don't care. You're like, I'll take the disc. Sure, I'll give you a 10, whatever. It takes no time out of my life. But to them, what have they just done? They're trying to get a 10 on the survey. They're not trying to give you better service or create a better experience. So incentives create a lot of problems. What I've learned is that employees don't have a motivation problem. If you've hired the correct people, they have a demotivation problem. So rather than incentives, let's look at what causes employees to feel demotivated. And that's pretty easy to discover. You can ask them and they'll tell you, our products and services, when they don't work and I have to take call after call from customers who are angry and there's nothing I can do about it. When policies are in the way of doing the right thing, when I have a boss who doesn't support me or understand what my needs are, even though I keep asking, hey, I need these resources, 
Those are the things that upset employees, that discourage them. And if you could take those things away, your employee's natural motivation begins to rise. Employees want to do a great job. Whatever they're working in, if you've hired correctly, they want to do a great job. So get rid of the incentives, spend time talking to your employees, and you'll discover far better ways to get performance. That is awesome. And I think we've seen a pattern of how not only employee experience is linked to customer experience, but how it's almost of a prerequisite to good customer experience is making sure that your employees are happy and they're like taken care of throughout their whole journey as an employee, right? Through the learning, through bringing ideas, to executing on their tasks and everything. Yeah, I think that's phenomenal. And how would you differentiate customer service from customer experience? A lot of people, a lot of our audience, and I know like people in the industry, it's very easy to get those two sometimes confused. How do you see both both areas, like their roles in the whole sphere? And how do you think the people in them differ? I think one area that creates confusion is sometimes we see this trend now where customer service teams or contact centers are renaming themselves the customer experience team, and they're not doing anything different. So internally, I think some people get confused about the definitions because they're just looking at what their company does. So we need to pull back a little bit, broaden it, and understand the definition. So let's start with customer experience again, is all of the interactions a customer has with your company, how they feel about those interactions. Uh, I credit Annette Franz again for coming up with that wonderful definition. I just went to the dictionary and looked up customer service because I wanted to, I don't want a Jeff Toyster definition. I want a, this is how we define it definition. And customer service is essentially at its most basic, the assistance that a company gives its customers to use its products and services. And this can be proactive pre-sale assistance. So if you go into a store and someone helps you pick out the right item, that is customer service. If on the other hand, you buy an item and it's not working as well as you thought it would and you contact support, how do I use this? That's also customer service. Customer service is a subset of customer experience. Customer experience is the big picture. Customer service is the smaller picture. And now there's another term that people are using called customer success. And again, they're confused because in their company, there's a customer service department and a customer success department. And that's great. You can organize it however you want, but customer success is truly, by definition, a subset of customer service. So I sometimes think of those little Russian stacking dolls, the Matroshka dolls, right? The big doll is customer experience. Pull that open. And then inside that doll is customer service. That is the, the assistance we provide to customers. Pull that open. And then the little doll inside, that's customer success, which is helping our customers get the best value out of our products and services. They're all very important. Companies organize these functions in different ways, but it's important to understand those key definitions so that even outside your organization, how these things line up. Amazing. I love the metaphor as well. I think it's a great way to think about it. And it's interesting how it brings us to uh, an interesting point of conversation, which are the problems around building, maintaining, and scaling the CX culture. We touched on a few from incentives and from the idea of not having your destination and your success metrics well-defined. But it'll be interesting to jump into a few other areas of problems that companies uh, encounter, which is how do you get your stakeholders bought in? How do you get everyone aligned into the right type of metrics to follow? Because 
in the end, customer experience, like any like any area of a business, you need to marry both the quant and the and the qualitative elements and sides of things. So I just wondered, what other key problems do you see in general in building a customer centric culture, and in terms of getting your stakeholders bought in, and how do you, how would you advise companies to go about it? So there's a lot to unpack here. So we'll start with how do we get. I would say, let's really start with what are the problems? Because I think the problems lead to the solutions. And there's three problems that I see most often. One, a lack of clarity. And we've talked about that. We create clarity by creating a customer experience vision. Everybody understands the same thing. And you can test this right now. Go to your employees and ask them, what does a great customer experience look like for our company? And if you don't have clarity, you'll probably get a lot of very different answers, which tells you that's a problem. So that's the first one. The second one, I think, is impatience. So impatience is, I see a lot of executives, that's why they're trying to hire me. Hey, Jeff, can I pay you a bunch of money to fix my problem for me and it make it go away magically? No, you can't. You could pay me a bunch of money, but your problem will still be there. <laughs> and that's the challenge, is executives don't want to do the hard work. I think the third thing is distraction. We are naturally wired to get distracted. Our days are full of distractions. People listening right now are also doing something else while they're listening. We're fully distracted. Hey, listener, pay attention to this one. Executives, when they get distracted, lose sight of the vision, they set it to the side and they start doing other things and they create misalignments. And, and that leads us to, you talked about metrics, for example. I can easily create the wrong metric if I don't take time to understand what problem I'm solving, what behaviors I want, and engage the people who are involved. And so if I create a metric around like survey scores, right? Because I think, hey, a great survey scores equals great experience. I may not take time to think about if I give my employees a metric for survey scores, what I'm really trying to get them to do is manipulate our survey data. And so metrics can often create a lot of the wrong behavior. So how do we fix this? One, we start with that vision and we align everything we do with that vision. Two, let's talk to our employees and our stakeholders. You want your stakeholders to buy in? Invite them to the table from the beginning and frame the problem you're trying to solve and ask for their input. And then three, you have to stay focused. You have to use that customer experience vision consistently for your decision making. And when you do, I think your employees will understand that. And I'll give you a great example. There's a company uh, here in the States that I really admire called REI. They sell all kinds of gear for exploring the outdoors. A few years ago, they started this campaign on Black Friday, which is the busiest retail day of the year in the United States. It's the day after our Thanksgiving holiday. And they said, you know what? Our brand is all about being outdoors and enjoying outside. We're going to shut down on Black Friday, busiest day of the year. We're going to shut down our entire store. You know what? We'll shut down our website too because we want you to go outside. Now, that, that takes some guts to do that, but that shows that their leadership is aligned with their customer experience vision, which is we want to help you enjoy the outside. And they gave all their employees the day off as well because they said, we want you to enjoy being outside because you represent our brand. And they've stuck to it. I think they've been doing it for about five years now. You have to make those difficult decisions, but those difficult decisions become easier to make when the vision is your guide. 100%. And I think it, go, it speaks to that uh, 
holistic branding idea, right? Everything about them speaks their brand, like yes. from how they treat the customers to how they treat the employees to how they send a message across via content, anything that they do is congruent, right? Uh, and you mentioned what... earlier about happy employees, for example, I did research and people like to say happy employees equal happy customers, not necessarily. There are plenty of companies with very happy employees and very unhappy customers. The key is the alignment that our employees are very happy doing what we need them to do to make our customers happy. So that, as you were saying, when it's incongruent, we create problems. I can just make my employees happy, give them everything they want, but they're not going to make my customers happy. I need both to be happy. So happy employees are essential, but just making your employees happy doesn't automatically lead to happy customers. 100%. I find it fascinating how much customer experience is almost like it's a management lever almost, right? If you don't nail that, like you can forget a lot of the other elements of management. So I find it really fascinating. I just I want to jump on that example of, of this uh, outdoors company that you brought and just tap into other creative and adaptive stories that you've witnessed during this year, like through COVID, through lockdown, and how some of these companies have been adapting creatively. And any examples like pop up to you that you think are, are great for our listeners to bear in mind and to gain some inspiration from? I, I think if we look at customer experience, you know, it's really about understanding the problems that your customers are trying to solve, the worries that your customers have, and coming to your customer and saying, hey, we can fix that for you, and then actually delivering on that promise. So REI is a great example. Early in the pandemic, where store, retail stores were limited, how many people do we have? How many people do we let inside? Are you wearing a mask? Are they not? They did something very simple. They just put a person at the door. And they created a very clear line with markers that say this is, you know, how far apart you have to stand. And they controlled the traffic with a friendly person, not an unfriendly sign that people will ignore, but a friendly person that said, hey, would you mind wearing a mask? Hey, we've got one more person to come out, then you're next in. And all of a sudden, people were cool. They were having fun. It was okay. I recently went on my first flight since the pandemic began. I was really worried to fly. But previously, I had been on the road Almost every week, I flew a lot. And so my favorite airline, unfortunately, it's not where you are in the UK, but it, it is growing in the United States. It's called Alaska Airlines. They're very customer focused. And one thing they did, they understand that a lot of people like me who fly a lot were worried. So the president of the company made this very sincere video. And then one of the things he said was, I want to talk about how it's safe to fly. In fact, I've got some trips coming up to visit my kid, to do this. So I want you to know I'm flying too. I'm like, okay, I'm in. Tell me more about it. And he explained very simply, very briefly, all of the safety precautions. And I learned a lot. And I took that information to my doctor. Hey, doc, is this true? Is this how it works? Is this going to be okay? My doctor said, you know what? I fly Alaska Airlines too. They're great. And so I think when we're adapting to COVID, too many companies are thinking, oh, we're losing revenue. Oh, this is so difficult. Yes, it's difficult. You're losing revenue. It's costing you more money. But the companies that are really succeeding realize their customers are worried too. And they're focused on, let's help you feel better. Let's make your life better. And so the fundamentals of customer experience don't change. They've just required you to look at your customers' new problems that they're facing today that they weren't facing a year ago. Definitely. I think that's a phenomenal way to put it. And also, 
it's this it's hard for these uh, companies to realize that they have the same creativity that they have the same team to to pull off these type of responses that many of these amazing companies have and it's i just want to hear about how would you go about pitching that right how do you go about with with a solution to today's problems being customer experience right you're an employee in a company how do you think employees should go to their managers to their ceos even and how should they pitch that okay this is where the focus should be so ironically i think you need to take a customer experience approach to your leaders and think about what they're worried about so too often i think employees pitch something and they don't realize they're actually adding worry to their executives so they'll go to their executives for example and they'll say hey I think we're understaffed in this department. I'd like to hire five more people. They just told the executive who is worried about budgets, hey, let's spend more money. That really gets the executive to push back and say, no, I'm not interested. Let's not do that. So let's look at it in a different way. What does your executive worry about? And one easy way to figure this out, I call it the hot button. And if you're paying attention, you probably know what your executive's hot button issues are. What do they talk about most often? What do they notice if it's wrong immediately? There's probably one or two things that all executives talk about a lot, uh, but it's different based upon your executive. I had uh, one company I worked with, the CEO's hot button was, he, they had a, a support team to handle incoming support calls, but for off hours or overflow, they had a contracted contact center. And, the thing that the CEO talked about all the time was how much volume they were sending to the contact center. And why was he concerned about that? Because he perceived, probably rightly so, that it costs more money to send those calls, so costs going up, and that the experience was not as good as the internal calls. So if you understand what that hot button is, then everything you should do to get what you want should be framed around helping your executive get what they want. So for example, if I want to add staff, Instead of saying, hey, I want to add staff, go to your CEO and say, hey, we are sending X number of calls to our outsourcer right now. And I think if we hired five more people, we can save 20% a month. Oh, I can save money by not sending as many callers over to that outsourcer? Fantastic. Show me the spreadsheet. If the numbers check out, I'm in. So I really think we need to take a customer experience approach not only to our external customers, but our internal customers as well. It's very psychological, this whole approach of how you figure out what, what the person that is making the decision wants and needs and make sure that it aligns with what you need and try to find the best compromise there. Phenomenal, Jeff. Thank you so much for the insights there. And now I just wanted to talk about the book, so the Service Coach Your Handbook. What led you to write that book? Why do you think that was the most important uh, subject to talk about? And it would be interesting just to listen more about how your approach was to actually get that done and everything. Service culture is my passion. It's something I've always focused on in one way or another. And just, I was just talking about, you'd have to take that customer experience approach. I was listening to my customers and I was hearing two things over and over again. One, my customers often had budget pressure when it came to working on service culture. There's not a lot of money that companies spend on service and customer experience. And when they do spend money, it's usually on technology. So I realized that my clients were having a hard time getting the resources they need. The second thing though that I, I realized was my clients often really did look at hiring a consultant like me to come in, fix everything. And, and then they, they were absolved of responsibility. 
And that's just not a sustainable model. So I had been doing a lot of service culture work. I had figured out a lot of what worked, also made some mistakes, figured out what didn't work. And I said, what if I could put this into a book so maybe people can't afford my consulting rate? Maybe they shouldn't pay a consultant like me. But let's give them a guide that they can keep with them and walk through step-by-step step exactly the same procedures that I've been using with my clients. I said, before I do this though, let me get some credibility. Let me research other companies that I admire and see where if there's some common threads. Maybe I can still learn and improve upon my model. And I discovered two things while I was writing the book. One is my model, big picture, is exactly what customer-focused companies have been using. So I didn't invent it, I think I just clarified it. But the second thing is there are some things I discovered that were surprising to me and I had to add to the model. So as an example, a big part of a service culture is empowering your employees. But one thing I discovered is that our traditional view of empowerment is giving employees authority. Hey, go do what you need to do. And customer focus organizations, they define empowerment different. The way they empower, define empowerment is enabling employees to deliver the customer experience that they promise to their customers. And that actually involves three things. One is some authorities. I have to give you the flexibility to adapt to the situation. But ironically, the second thing is I have to have standard procedures. Because if I go into a, let's say a Starbucks in London, and they make coffee one way, and then I go to a Starbucks in San Diego, and they make a coffee completely differently because they say, hey, make it however you want to make it the experience will not be consistent. So they have to have very clear and standard procedures that are best practices. And the third thing is employees need to have the resources. For example, if I'm working in customer support and I, my customers are upset because the product that we're selling doesn't work, I can't do anything about it. I need to have the resources to fix that product. Or if my system won't let me give you the appropriate rate and we keep billing you the wrong amount and you're just getting angrier and angrier and I want to help you but I can't because the computer system won't let me do it. I don't have the resources to fix it. So that was a bit of a surprise to me and what's been cool about putting all of this in one spot is it's liberated me. I've put my phone number, my email in every book and I invite readers to call me or email me. No obligation, no charge, just I'm here to support you. So now I'm supporting them through their customer experience. Now, just going back into the skills question, which I think uh, is fascinating. Uh, in the CX space, what do you see are the secrets to success, right? Like in terms of skills, both soft and hard skills uh, to master uh, CX as a, as a profession, as the tools in CX. Like, what do you say are the three top soft skills and top, uh, three top hard skills that uh, people should focus on? I think there's a few basic skills if we're talking about high-level customer experience. One is empathy. And more than anything else, we have to have the ability and the willingness to see things through the eyes of our customer and understand their perspective the way they see it. I recently had a really bad experience with the retailer. I won't name them. Uh, but, I but I thought about how the retail operated, and I realized from their perspective, they probably logged one complaint or one service failure. From my perspective, there were 18. I'm never going to shop with them again. 18. And so I think empathy helps you understand through the eyes of the customer exactly what they're experiencing so that you can make that experience better. The second, I think, is, is analytical skills. The ability 
to really get data to help you answer tough questions and solve the problem. And I don't just mean surveys. I think we survey our customers to death. I, I really mean the ability to figure out what's going on, what's working, what's not working, where are we falling short of our, our customers' expectations and breaking our promises, and what's driving that so that we can fix it and make it better. And I think the third is listening. Not just listening to our customers, which is critically important, but listening to our employees as well. One of the mistakes I see executives make over and over is they think, hey, I'm a leader. I'm paid to make decisions. I've made a decision. I will now go proclaim it. And they leave key stakeholders out. As a leader, I felt it's always important. Go to your employees, the people around the front lines, the people who are talking to customers every single day and ask them, what do you hear? What are people saying? What's working? What's not working? And they'll tell you. And you'll learn a lot of perspectives that way. So I think listening is also very key. There's a lot of disciplines that go into customer experience, whether it's marketing, operations, customer service, support. And you pointed out, Joel, communication. I think we have to have the ability not only to frame a vision, but the ability to communicate with different teams and stakeholders in the organization to make sure that we consistently have the same goals, and we're all moving in the same direction. And that's really the role of, of the CEO, and that's really the role of the executives to make sure that all of the teams in an organization are moving together. Absolutely. Yeah, so now just to talk about how COVID has impacted CX and companies in general, and looking deeper into the type of problems COVID has, has caused in big business all over the world. Any patterns that you've noticed so far about the types of problems that company have been facing and how they could better position themselves to solve them? I think the biggest challenge, uh, frankly, is not technology. A lot of people point to technology. I think technology is its own problem. We're making customer experience too complicated, not only for our customers, but for us. So it, it, think about how many different channels of communication, for example, now that we have to keep track of. And we have to maintain a consistent brand. We have our website. We have our brick and mortar locations. We have our app. You know, customers can email us. They can phone us. They can chat us. They can tweet us. They can post Facebook messages. There's a million different ways that they can interact with our brand. And even if we're not paying attention to the conversation, they're going on social media, they're going on online review sites, and they're interacting and talking about us anyway. It's getting more and more complicated. And the more complicated things are, I think the harder it is to keep track of the most important details. What problem is your customer trying to solve? What promise are you making to your customers that you can solve it for them? And what actions are you taking to actually keep your promise? So I think the distractions of technology are probably the biggest challenge. And if we can maintain our focus on the fundamentals, and I'll give you a quick example. One of the companies that I admire and love the most is a company called In-N-Out. They sell burgers primarily on the West Coast. What the company you've probably heard of is McDonald's. And so the comparison between In-N-Out and McDonald's, they both started in 1948 in Southern California, where I live. They're both fundamentally fast food burger places. And, and McDonald's has grown into this global brand. But on a store-by-store -store basis, In-N-Out crushes McDonald's in terms of sales, profitability, customer loyalty. How do they do that? Because to this day, they still focus on the basics. They sell you a cheeseburger, a hamburger, a double cheeseburger, fries, a beverage. That's it. 
There's no salads. There's no McNuggets. There's no ribs. There's, there's none of that. They focus on doing what they do best. And an interesting anecdote during COVID, we were talking about earlier, McDonald's, which is about 90 plus percent franchise run, they give their franchisees some leeway. They say, we're going to pare back the amount of menu items we have to make it easier to run your supply chain and to make it easier to run your business during this really difficult time. And they found that quality went way up and customer satisfaction went way up when they started focusing more and more. And so I think the examples are out there. When you focus on doing the things that you can do really well and tune out the distractions, you can create some great results. Thank you so much for your insights, for sharing your, uh, your experience. I know uh, how, like, how hard-earned all this knowledge and experience is. So for you to pass it back with us and with our audience, we can't thank you enough. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Thank you.